I reached a point where I could just no longer do it. I couldn't survive in the closet another day. It just, it's soul draining. I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, think of the worst day in your life and you just get used to it being the worst day of your life every day. (laughs) That's what, at least to me, being in the closet felt like. And so I reached a point in November of 2017 where I just said, it, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Charlotte Clymer. My name is Charlotte Clymer. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I live in Washington, D.C., where I've been for about 11 years, and I'm from the great state of Texas. Charlotte's life changed completely with one click on November 29th, 2017, the day she announced to the world that she would present herself outwardly as the person she knew herself to be inside, a woman. Charlotte is one of the most prominent transgender activists in the United States. She is the Rapid Response Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC, which is the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. My day-to-day job is coordinating messaging to the White House and Capitol Hill in breaking news, however it relates to not only LGBTQ politics, but also anything adjacent to that. So, you know, racial equality, reproductive rights, gun reform, uh, disability rights, anything that affects people in the LGBTQ community, we cover. And, you know, I'm kind of on the tip of the spear on that in many, many ways. Charlotte grew up in Texas, enlisted in the military, attended West Point, and served in the U.S. Infantry. Charlotte was honorably discharged at age 24, and she completed her education at Georgetown University with the assistance of the GI Bill. A year after graduating, Charlotte joined the Human Rights Campaign and shared her true identity with the world. I went to meet Charlotte in Washington, D.C. to ask about her journey through her military service, her transition, and about her upbringing that has inspired her to share her own story in order to advance and protect the rights and lives of so many others. What are the skills required for working in the news and working in rapid response? That's a great question. I like to think of news and media to include communications, because there's two sides, really. There's the media piece, journalists cover the world, and there are there's the other side, which is the communications people who try to shape the news as best we can um, or who try to advocate for the causes we care about. I think half my job is coordinating approvals. You know, I have to talk to our policy people to make sure it aligns with our policy objectives. I have to talk to, um, you know, our legal people to ensure it aligns, you know, legally and makes sense from a constitutional standpoint. You have all these constituent groups uh, that you have to consider, our coalition partners, elected officials who are both allied with us and against us. And so there's all these moving pieces and so much of my job is just trying to figure out how to satisfy all those. And I think a good communications professional can do that seamlessly. And that's what I want to be someday. Maya Angelou, and I'm not going to get this quote exact, so I'm going to paraphrase her, but she essentially said that she writes because she can't hold it inside her. I'm the same way. I think that sentiment speaks so deeply to me. I, I can't not talk or speak out when something bothers me. And I love expressing myself 
to make sense of the world. And when I get hold of something and I can't explain it to myself yet, what I'll do is I'll write it out and I'll channel that rage into something cohesive so I can explain it to other people. How do you negotiate or have you just fully accepted being in the limelight? I think so, yeah. I want to talk about dysphoria because I'm sure your listeners can hear the sound of my voice. And I think 99% of people, if they heard my voice, they would assume it's a male. And, you know, if I acknowledge something, like when you're talking, I say, hmm, you know, and it sounds very male. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's painful for me. Um, from the standpoint of knowing how so many folks are going to listen to this and receive it. And so I just want to point out that, you know, we can hear ourselves too, and it hurts us. And trying to align our, trying to be our natural selves while also having to police the way that we can come across, especially trans women is too masculine, is exhausting and painful in itself. And I just, I just want people to realize that. Uh, would you be able to say what is dysphoria? Yeah. So gender dysphoria is at the root of what it means to be transgender. So cisgender are folks who are assigned sex at birth, and they align with that sex in terms of their gender identity. Sex is the anatomical desi designation you receive at birth, which is, you know, based on chromosomal information and whatnot. Gender identity is how you express yourself in terms of gender presentation. You know, the two are very separate. So, you know, someone who's assigned female at birth as their sex may feel like a man down the road. And they may come out and say, look, I've always felt like a man. I want to present as a man. And they are a, either a transgender man or they're transmasculine. A person who is assigned male at birth and proceeds to go through life feeling like a man and presenting as male is a cisgender male. So that's the difference between cisgender and transgender. Gender dysphoria is that disconnect. It is that constant disconnect between the body that you've been given, and how you feel internally. And it's not a mental illness. I, I think people mistake that. And you, you can, you know, if you're listening to this, go look it up. The American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the World Health Organization, everyone, you know, all, you know, every major medical authority has pointed out that it's not, it's not a debilitating mental illness. What it is is that when you try to present with your authenticity in the world, and people prevent you from doing that, you're going to feel stressed out and depressed because of it. That's gender dysphoria. So right now when I'm talking to you, I should be able to present as my authentic self as a woman and have a deep voice and you know the little grunts of agreement that I make without feeling like I'm less than of a woman because of that, right? Because if it was a cis woman, maybe people would be like, well, now she has a really deep voice, but she's still a woman. I should be treated the exact same. So I guess that's where I was going with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we have we'll have this audio and you know, when people ask you things, you can just play a clip of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Embracing who you are and getting comfortable with yourself. What a conundrum to embrace this side of you that you've had to keep so buried for so long. And then finding that bravery, finding that vision, really, you know, stepping into that, those shoes that have just been waiting for you mm. to kind of walk outside and and yet a whole another layer of 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 burden comes on. No, that <clears throat> that's great. That was a great way of putting that. I the dynamic here is is really startling because I 
I prefer being out of the closet by a magnitude of, you know, 100,000 times more than to being in the closet. But there are certain challenges that were not present present in the closet. So, you know, in the closet, I was able to move through the world rather freely. No one noticed me. No one notices an average white male, blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, so-called, you know, quote-unquote clean-cut you know, I'm kind of invisible, which is great. I mean, it really is. I didn't even realize how great it was, but it's really great not to have anyone really give a shit about you from from the standpoint of just being able to be your own person. And coming out of the closet, it's been this sense of very deep liberation because in the closet, you know, even though I was able to move through the world freely, I constantly felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. I mean, I... I can't tell you the number of nights, especially when I was with my partner at the time, when I would go to a party or, you know, maybe a more formal event and be wearing a suit. And I would look, I'd look rather good. And yet I felt miserable. I felt so miserable. It didn't matter how many times she told me, you know, honey, you look so good tonight. You look amazing. It didn't matter. I felt disgusting. I felt incredibly disgusting. And I don't know how to explain that to people. Being inside your own skin but it doesn't look how it feels inside. And it's just this constant feeling of disgust. But what's really interesting is that even though I can walk through most spaces and feel comfortable in my own skin, I'm now noticed everywhere I go. So it's a different kind of stress. So, you know, I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to stop presenting as a woman because I am a woman and you know, I'm not going to stop going down this road of getting closer to who I want to be as a woman. And yet, you know, there are there are times when I'm in a space where, you know, it's not particularly friendly to trans people. And that's hard. It's really hard. I I have forgotten what it feels like to walk outside my door and not have anyone look at me. I was wondering if you had a mentor or um, if there was someone when you were young that you felt, you know, really saw you. Yes. My eighth grade English teacher, Vivian Denise Mabry. School was kind of my getaway. And so I did really well in school. I I was focused. I got straight A's. And I kind of cruised a little bit and got a little complacent. When I hit eighth grade, Mrs. Mabry was the wake-up call. She did not accept less than my best. So she's like, great, you got an A. You're about to get a C next because you're not putting your best effort into this. She would give me books to read about racial equality. I mean, I, I, cannot, I cannot say enough how much of an impact this woman had on my life. And I mean, I kind of look at her as the mother I never had. She was the one who got me interested in writing, who really got me interested in social justice, who made me question so many things around the world. I mean, or around in my immediate environment and, and, you know, demanded myself to be a better human being overall. And she made me feel loved. Like, she made me feel loved. I can't... She was the first experience with a human being who demanded my best because like, she knew I had it in me. She took a very deep interest in my future as a, as a human being in this world, and I, I will never forget her. When you were in school in Texas, did you know that you wanted to enlist? Is that something that you were aware of? I think so. Something about the military spoke to me in the way of a higher calling. I think as early as eight or nine, 
I just wanted to prove myself and prove that I could have the kind of character that I saw in so many of the folks who I admired who were in the military. I was living with my grandmother the summer after I graduated from high school. I came home one day from my job as a telemarketer <laughs> to news that the death toll in Iraq had hit 1,000. And I had vehemently disagreed with the war since the start. But I still felt guilty because there were 18, 19-year-olds, people my age, going over into Iraq and Afghanistan and making the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I didn't talk to anyone. I just went for it. I remember being in the recruiter's office and, uh, you know, he's like, okay, well, you scored high on your ASVAB and, you know, you can have any job you want in the military and you can be, uh, you can be going intelligence, you can be a translator, whatever you want. You know, I was like, no, I need to go infantry. There was like a pause. He was like, so you can do intelligence and you can be a translator <laughs> without missing a beat. Yeah. <sighs> okay, how, do, how long do you want to serve, up, serve for your first term? Like six years, which is the maximum. <laughs> and my recruiter's like, wait, 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 let's, let's slow down. Let's do three and see how you feel. And then we'll, we'll you know, revisit it at the end of your first term. I'm like, okay, kind of reluctantly, because I felt I wasn't doing the most. And I got to tell you, that was some great advice, because as soon as I hit basic training, whew, it was a wake-up call. My primary motivation for serving in the military was a sense of duty. But the secondary purpose was that I wondered if maybe serving would finally cleanse me of this need to be a woman. Because that's what it felt like at the time, that I just needed to be cleansed. I just needed to do some kind of aggressive masculine rite of passage to finally rid myself of this desire to be a woman, to be a girl, to have a vagina, to have breasts, to have a female body, to present as a woman. And, um, you know, that clearly did not happen. I went into the basic training and it was grueling from the start. It wasn't like school. Because in school, if you study hard and you get straight A's, you get praised. You know, you've done your job. In the military, the whole purpose is to break you down. And from day one, drill sergeants are pounding into your head that you are the lowest scum on earth. The whole purpose is to break you completely down, rebuild you, and rewire you into the kind of person who will take orders at the drop of a hat and not question authority. And I question authority a lot. And it's, it was an all-male infantry unit, all-male infantry unit at the time because the combat exclusion policy hadn't been lifted. And it was the same way. I remember the first week being at some kind of company briefing and one of the staff sergeants, which is like a rank above sergeant, uh, he said, oh, you better not say anything weird because Climber might say something. And I hadn't said anything up to that point, really. I was pretty quiet for a private. I was really, really quiet. And... They just, I know this is going to sound, but it's like people sensed something, that I was not one of them. I was not the go-along-to-get-along machismo type. And they hammered me for it relentlessly. And even when I got really good at things, like, you know, I, I did get a promotion ahead of time um, to E4, I believe. But the more I spoke out against things that were wrong, you know, if someone said a rape joke in my presence, I would call them out on it. If they said something racist, I would call them out on it. I got passed over for promotions, for awards, for specialty schools like airborne school, things like that. And it just happened again and again. And if it hadn't been for this officer who joined the company, uh, he became our XO and he took a shine to me. And he said, look, I, I, think, I think you would do well at West Point. I really do. So he walked me through the process and I applied and he endorsed my application. I got in and I told him, 
I would feel really guilty going to West Point. I feel like I need to go to the 82nd Airborne and deploy. He says, you're not going to the 82nd Airborne. Yeah. <laughs> he said that? He said that. He's like, I'm not going to let you do that. You're, you, Iraq and Afghanistan will be there when you graduate from West Point. You're going to go to West Point. Wow. You're going to commission as an officer. And then you can, you know, go lead troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, How are you able to really hear what he was saying? I respected him so much. And he was he was the only person in my unit who believed in me. And because so many people looked up to him, he was by far the most popular officer who had come through that unit, like by a mile. I mean, just this six foot three, you know, gregarious. He looks like a Disney prince in a way. <laughs> Big ass white teeth. He had been prior enlisted in addition to being West Point. It's like he was created in a lab. Because, you know, I think, I think, a good chunk of officers are despised by enlisted people because they're officers. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're ridiculous sometimes. And because so many people respected him and because he believed in me, I thought I will do whatever he tells me to do. So I went to West Point. I'm curious about the turn of events between graduating from West Point and going to Georgetown and, and that time in between. So I didn't graduate. Uh, I, you know, I got to West Point and... In a way, it was wonderful because it was, it was the structured environment that I wanted, surrounded by people who were really good at what they do. I think of it as like the Harry Potter school for it military. Is. It is. There it's are like so this many getaway. There are so many similarities with with Harry Potter. You literally take a train to West Point. Um, you get out and you you take a you can take a ferry across a river to the grounds. Um, there are four houses in Harry Potter. There are four you know, regiments <laughs> in West Point. And for me, though, I, I just finally found this highly structured environment. Here's the rub, though. Uh, it, it wasn't as values-driven as I thought it was going to be. I mean, Olympic-caliber athletes, incredibly bright young people. I mean, great, great kids overall. A lot of them, though, were not. You know, they were really talented at what they do, but they were often racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. And there was no accountability of that when I was there. And I would like to think that I would have been strong enough back then to realize, look, this is life, but I wasn't. The other side of the coin, however, was the lack of support system. So I got to West Point, and suddenly I'm without anybody. And all my classmates, it felt like, had parents who called them on a weekly basis, sent care packages, you know, flew them out for spring break to spend with the family. I didn't have that. You know, I did pretty well my first semester, and then it just kind of went downhill because all of the stuff that I'd been through as a kid came roaring back. And I saw what things might, might have been like if I had had loving parents. And so not only was it the loss of parents, but it was also the abuse that came back. And I never really admitted it to myself. And so suddenly when that came out, it really devastated me. When I had to finally confront it. Um, and, you know, if it hadn't been for my, uh, the officer in charge, the TAC officer, tactical officer was her title. If it hadn't been for her calling me into her office to be like, what is wrong with you? You're failing your classes. You're not doing well at all. You know, when I came clean with her and just said, look, here's what I'm coming through, going through, and here's what I had planned to do. I was hospitalized. Um, you know, they got me the care I needed, therapist, medication, things like that. But it was a long road back to, you know, brightly lit territory. 
Do you feel like those the resources and the support helped you heal? Saved my life. They did everything they were supposed to do in that situation. How did you end up at Georgetown? So I started working at uh, the Holocaust Museum. I'm still surprised I got it, to be honest with you, because I didn't have a college degree, but I had my veteran status. You know, I did full-time work, 40-hour week at Holocaust Museum and a 40-hour week, essentially, with, with school. I remember also what drove me was just wanting to be good enough for my partner at the time. I mean, she had been to Bryn Mawr, and she was applying to, like, a bunch of business schools, and she was so, so smart. I felt like, you know, to be good enough for her, I needed to get my undergrad. And so that's what really motivated me to go to Georgetown and get the degree. I mean, and meanwhile, she just, she didn't care about that. She just wanted to be with me. And But I did. I, I did it for me. I, I got in, and I was just so driven. I loved learning. I loved learning in that kind of environment. It was my first time in a college environment that wasn't, you know, obviously, obviously so regimented, and I thrived. And after Georgetown, what was the first piece of your um, journey to becoming a woman that you felt was, can you describe a moment of joy to me? And <sighs> um, that process. I fought a lot of pain. Fought a lot of pain, which is probably what amplified the joy. Um, 2016, I went to grad school that fall, 2016 happens, election night, devastating on every level. Same week, my partner and I break up. Her parents had essentially forced her to choose between them and me. And by then I'd come out to her as trans. And we were trying to work on how to do that and find this happy medium where I would more or less stay in the closet while also being able to be with her. And it was hard. It was really, really hard on her and me. You know, there was no bad guy in that situation. It was just a really difficult situation for two young people to work through. Um, I spent the next year just trying to figure out how I was going to come out because I was terrified. I thought if I come out now, I'm going to be at risk of discrimination and assault and maybe even murdered, you know, things like that. But there, I reached a point where I could just no longer do it. I couldn't survive in the closet another day. It it just, it's soul-draining I don't know how to I don't know how to describe it. It's just think of the worst day in your life and you just get used to it being the worst day of your life every day. <laughs> That's what at least to me being in the closet felt like. And so I reached a point in November of 2017 where I just said, it. "I'm done. I can't do this anymore." I wrote this long coming out thread Posted it to Facebook, posted it to Twitter, and that was it. I was worried. I thought I would lose friends and family. I mean, not family. I mean, I suppose, you know. The modern family. Modern family, people who are really close to me. And the exact opposite happened. I mean, just this outpouring, overwhelming sense of love. You know, I had women I had dated years before reach out to me and be like, hey, if you want to go, like, check out makeup or, like, clothing and need tips, like, let me know. Uh, I had a few, you know, guys who I had served with in my unit who reached out to congratulate me. I still do, by the way. There's still guys in my unit who reach out be like, look, I, I'm, you know, necessarily good with your politics, but I'm really happy that you're happy. And I just want to tell you that, which I did not expect at all. And it also drove home the privilege of that moment. 
I had access to all this love that I guarantee you most trans people do not have when they come out. And I have never, never taken that for granted. I felt so much, so much joy from dressing as a woman, finally, and being able to walk outside my door. And I still get that way. Like today, I put on this outfit and I saw myself before I left the apartment and I just, your heart just leaps a little bit. You walk around sometimes, like sometimes I'm walking around, whether it's at work or on the city, and it just hits me, oh my God, I am, I am a woman and I am finally treated as a woman or recognized as a woman. Crying all over your set. Um, it feels good. It's just this constant source of elation. Even with the bad it's a constant source of elation. Is there a, a piece of jewelry or a piece of clothing that to you was significant um, in some way, purchasing or putting on? Or uh, Well, let me preface this by saying that I don't think womanhood is defined by any one person. And not, not that you're saying that. No, yeah. You're not at all saying that, by the way. As I sit across from you now, I'm wearing a, uh, a watch Several years ago when I decided I'd create my own company and I'd just cash in all my chips, bet on myself. And, you know, at the time I couldn't even, like, buy another microphone, which I really needed. And I walked into an outlet store and I picked out this watch in less than 15 minutes. Oh, my God. And I love it so much. To me, this watch is a symbol of the woman that I'd always wanted to be when I was little. And when I wear this watch, I'm like, it doesn't even matter if I'm her. I have this watch. <laughs> you know? Like, uh, that's... And that's why I say I might be projecting here, but is there a piece of jewelry or a piece of clothing that to you was significant during this process? Yeah, no doubt. I, I There have been several things like that. And again, just want to preface this real quick. You know, Every woman, every person who defines themselves as a woman defines womanhood for themselves. For me, it's been several things. Um, you know, the first time I wore heels, just wearing a dress finally with heels um, felt really good. It felt like a, a natural state of being for me. I got to tell you, to that little 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl in Central Texas, it felt amazing. Like, finally, I had what I wanted, something I never thought I would have. It felt great. This is called Truth or Truth. Okay. <laughs> There's no dare on I the love woman. it. I like to say that we go light after we go deep. Okay. Uh, early bird or night owl? Night owl by a mile. Do you keep a journal? Yes. Uh, favorite city you've ever lived in? D.C. D.C. hands down. This is where I found myself. It's where I found a family. I love D.C. How can cisgender people be better allies? <sighs> I love cis allies so much. They're such lovely people. Um, if I can say this with all the amount of respect and love in the world, I would love to see more cis people do the labor themselves. If you have a question about trans people, Google is a subscription-free service. And it's so easy to just go look it up. Um, trans people get asked about their personal lives, their personal bodies all the time. It's like a part-time job. And I think it comes from such a good place and a wonderful place. And I want to hug us this person every time they ask me a question like that. I just want to hug them and say, thank you for caring about me. Can I ask you if you can just look this up yourself and teach yourself and then teach other cis people? I would love to see that. And I recall all the times in my past when I've taken issues of racial equality to friends of color and ask them to educate me 
or uh, cis women on issues of you know abortion access, things that I could have looked at myself that I did not. I think a lot about that. All the labor that I put on other people in my life, people I cared about and cared about me, instead of taking on the labor myself and educating myself and educating those who also didn't know that. And that was that's really been driven home since being out of the closet because I swear I'd, I'd say 20, 30% of my existence is educa- educating people against my will sometimes. That's how it feels. Because if I don't, if I'm not kind to them, if I, if I get frustrated, that makes other trans people look bad. You know, there's a focal point on me and, and other trans people in the limelight where we have to be, I don't want to be dramatic, but we kind of have to be models in a way of kindness and empathy and understanding and making space for other people who have privilege. And it drives home the point of how much work I have to do as an ally, as a white person, as an able-bodied person, and the fact that going through oppression as a trans person does not erase the privileges that I hold and those other aspects of, of social identity. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Where do I see myself in 10 years? This is a lightning round, so it's hard to pinpoint something specific. But I would say my body will finally look like how it feels inside. You know, I'll go through all the surgery that I desire, and I will be a columnist at some newspaper writing truths that are very important to me that I think need to be shared with the world. And I will be working to make space for other people. I'll be a good ally to other folks who need an ally. Um, And I would like to think that would be a good living. That'd be a good state of existence. You can follow and learn more about Charlotte and her story on Twitter at C.M. Clymer. That's C-M-C-L-Y-M-E-R and the Human Rights Campaign at HRC. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Sabine Jansen, Nora Kipnis and the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at TheWomenPod. You can see a picture of me and Charlotte at the studio at TheWomenPod on Twitter and Instagram. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 